At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We are patients and caregivers, executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo, and we have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. One interesting caveat of the pandemic, and I know we talk about the pandemic a lot, but it's kind of a big deal, was this notion that when the hospital shut down, we started seeing studies like, well, we have less heart attacks. People aren't having strokes anymore. And we're sitting, a lot of us are sitting there scratching our heads saying, what in the world is happening? Are we just magically healthier? Obviously not, considering how COVID took its toll on our society. And then some people started saying, well, is COVID, is a COVID infection actually healing heart attacks? And so that's all tongue in cheek, not to make light of the situation. But what ultimately happened was that people were no longer seeking medical care. And that became a very, very scary ordeal for many, many families across the country as care was shut down, offices were shut down, hospitals were basically locked up and said, nope, sorry, can't have care here. I don't know what people did. I I truly do not know what people did. But as with all things, I'm not going to give you a problem and complain about something without being very pragmatic in the solutions approach. Joining me today is the chief commercial officer of patient Darius Charza. Darius, thanks for joining us on Healthcare Americana. Chris, pleasure to be here. Now, one of the main things I want to focus on is this kind of habit we saw. I don't know if it's a habit or this condition of total shutdowns that let, you know, medical services included, that people stopped seeking medical care or delayed medical care. I know those two things kind of go hand in hand. What was your experience? And give me it through the lens of patient and then how patient could potentially help alleviate that and solve a lot of problems today that might not have existed, you know, three years ago before the pandemic. Chris, thank you, first of all. And and I think, I mean, there's probably two separate ways, I think, to answer the question, right? The first is a question of like, why were people putting off care? And I think there's almost like a pre-pandemic version of that answer. There's a pandemic version of that answer. And there's kind of a today version of that answer. And all of those are, are building on one another. I think the second piece of it is just why does it matter, right? What are the consequences of people putting this off? Why is it bad? Why is it bad kind of for individuals and their outcomes? And at the same time, why is it bad as for the system overall, right? And I think breaking it out into those two pieces is probably an easier way to think about it. So pre-pandemic, right? I think one of the pieces that there was already some literature about, which didn't get a ton of airplay, but really is important is the idea of cost as a barrier to care, right? That existed and the system had been trending in that direction for a number of years. As deductibles go up, co-pays, co-insurance, 
all the member responsibility side of it, that was contributing to that piece of it, right? And there's research from pre-pandemic that, that kind of corroborates that piece. During the pandemic, we kind of had a, this added layer that got folded in where as the offices shut down, as people frankly just wanted to stay out of the hospitals as much as they could, people deferred the care on the basis of just not wanting to go really, right? At risk of getting sick, at risk of being exposed, at risk of kind of overwhelming a system that was already at risk of being overwhelmed. And then post-pandemic, we're seeing almost this like evolution where there's a bunch of pent-up demand from people who didn't get care over the course of the pandemic. And so there's demand for services coming there. And at the same time, we're seeing people getting squeezed a little bit by the inflation that we're seeing in the market more generally, as well as the need of providers to frankly increase prices and increase rates in response to their own cost bases and the challenges that providers are having, that's kind of putting this squeeze on members, right? You're saying you've put off care for all this time that was exacerbated during the pandemic. And then now whatever little share of wallet you had available for, for healthcare services, that's getting squeezed even more because now, you know, it costs you twice as much to fill up your gas tank. Your grocery bill is 20% higher. When you go out for dinner, it's 25% higher. All that stuff is kind of squeezing already a pretty small set of funds that were available. So in terms of the the why, right, I think it's a multifaceted problem, but it's changed over time, kind of pre and post. And then to the question of why does it matter? I mean, truly, I think there's two pieces to it, right? From a member perspective or an individual perspective, it is bad for you to put off care. And I think the easiest metaphor to, to understand this for folks is that idea of like a, a dentist visit, actually, right? And we've all probably experienced this in one way, shape, or form. You go for your cleaning. The dentist says, hey, you've got this cavity that's emerging. Maybe you want to do something about it. Maybe you want to get a filling. And for any number of reasons, right, it could be the fact that you know your plan is going to make you pay for 50% of the filling. You know that maybe you don't have the time. You don't think it's a big problem. Either way, you put off that filling. Well, what happens is that cavity doesn't go away, right? And so when you don't get that dealt with, you're back in that chair getting whatever, a root canal two years later. That's more miserable for you as a patient. It's more expensive for you as the individual paying for it. It's more expensive for your plan as the person who's also paying for a portion of that root canal. And an overall kind of worse experience. Now, you take that concept and you kind of extrapolate it to healthcare, and very much the same thing is happening over all kind of bands of care, right? All specialties, whether it's primary care or kind of specialties inside of it, the same pattern of behavior is happening. And people put this off for a multitude of reasons, primary which in our experience has been actually money, right? Or concerns about being able to pay for it and affordability. And so you end up with patients having worse health outcomes. They're having worse financial outcomes in terms of the cost of care down the line when it's untreated ends up being more severe. And then if you think about the system-wide implications of it, most of us in this country get insurance through our employers, right? Most of those employers end up paying for that care in the form of the premiums. So in a world where you're putting off care and you end up getting more expensive care down the line, the cost of the services goes up, which gets folded back into your premiums the next year as a rate increase. And so that's exactly the thing we're seeing and hearing from employers today, which is this discussion around 
increases in prices from providers have been passed on to the insurance companies and the insurance companies are passing it on to the employers in the form of increased premiums. And so we're in this sort of death spiral where that keeps happening. Employers respond by making the plans less generous. And so members have more out-of-pocket responsibility and this this really like death spiral keeps going. And, and I think we think there's kind of an opportunity by handling that affordability problem, right? To help both the members and the individuals who are suffering those worst outcomes, but also alleviate some of the strain uh, on the system itself in the form of breaking that, that vicious cycle that we're all, frankly, we've been living in for the last 20 years. It seems like you described kind of the perfect storm these past couple of years where, all right, economic shutdown, the hospitals, care facilities are not open, so I can't go get care, so I'm going to have to wait it out, do home care, do whatever. Now things open up. Now you're hit with inflation, like you talked about, um, eight and a half, uh, 11, I think we're, we're, we're creeping up on it was not like across June the board nine or something. Yeah. 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 Crazy stuff. And so now people are like, wow, I, I flat out don't have the budget space to now seek care. Again, that's kind of the old school mentality that health insurance opens the door for the healthcare service world. Obviously we know that that's different, but we're not everybody. Uh, we're not the majority of people around the United States, unfortunately, someday, hopefully. So read us into how patient solves that problem of affordability. So, yeah, thank you. I, I characterize it in the following way, right? People put off care for kind of two, if you think about it from the financial side, there's kind of two angles to it, right? One is you just look at it and you say, hey, I don't care how much this thing costs. I know I can't afford this. There's some set of people and particularly folks in sort of lower socioeconomic groups in the country where it's the problem is truly at that level, right? It almost doesn't matter what the price is. I can't afford it. For a lot of folks in the country, it's compounded or the affordability problem is compounded by this like lack of transparency in the pricing where it's this question of like, I might be able to afford it, but Every time I get a bill, I never know what it's going to be. I certainly don't know in advance. And it takes sort of 90 days for the claim to get adjudicated and show up. And if that bill ends up being more than, I don't know, for the sake of argument, $200, then I have a problem. Because of that uncertainty, I'm going to put that off. And so there's kind of two ways where that cost as a barrier to care thing plays out. I think for most people in this country, it's probably folks in that second bucket. But we think sort of the way we're trying to approach the problem solves both of those. And so the approach is one where whether it's through your employer or through your health plan that's providing the the health insurance that you have, we're going and we're saying to folks, hey, we're going to put money in your hands that you can use for healthcare kind of broadly defined. Now, whether that's medical, dental, vision, pharma, we can sort of set that parameter at the discretion of an employer or the health insurer we're partnered with. But Generally, our bias is to take the broadest aperture we can towards it. And we say, hey, here's funds you can use to pay for those services. We're going to put those on a card in the form of credit, really, right? So in a, in a form factor that's familiar to people, they know how to use it. It's not something new and kind of newfangled that they need to be retrained on. Like We all at this stage know how to use a card. And so put that card in folks' hand and we say, hey, you can use this for any of those categories of care to pay for providers. When you pay a provider and when you use this card, they're paid in full. So whether it's the doctor's office, whether it's at CVS where you're filling your scripts, whether it's at the dentist's office, 
they get paid in full and they're frankly out of the equation at that point, right? They're kind of done. You can do it at the point of service. Same with any other card. You can pay after the fact if they send you a bill online, over the phone, whatever. Once you pay them, all we ask is sort of two things from the patient. One is tell us how long you want to take to pay. Do you want to pay it back in one month? Do you want to pay back in three months? Do you want to pay it back in one year? We'll give the member the ability to choose their own payment terms really as a way of restoring dignity back to this process, right? It's something you do privately on your, on your phone, whether it's whatever iPhone, Android, whatever it is, you do it on the web. You set your own payment terms in a way that fits your budget. And if you want to pay $100 back over a year, that's fine by us. There's never any interest. There's never any fees. There's never any cost to you as the individual. And then the second thing is we just ask you where you want to pay from. And so you can pay out of your bank account. You can use your HSA account if it's a qualified expense. Yeah, you can pay with your debit card. But the secret sauce of it in part is, particularly for the employer models, will actually let you pay over time using payroll deduction. And that kind of ease a little bit of the like set it and forget it uh, mentality I think makes it a really favorable customer experience, right? So in a place where NPS scores in healthcare are generally atrocious, right? Whether it's providers and the payers, it's it's sort of in the 30s, right? We've pretty reliably seen NPS scores in the mid 90s. And so for us, that's sort of corroborating this idea that one, it's easy to use, two, people see the value and kind of appreciate the flexibility it affords people. Yeah, and three, based on especially the qualitative feedback we get, is that idea that it is bringing dignity back and sort of flexibility and giving people a way to pay on their own means, that, that's what we hear from our members. And so our view is by bringing that capital and letting people use that in a way that lets them access care that either they've been putting off or access care in a pinch when something unexpected happens, right? Because most of healthcare is frankly that way. Like, you didn't plan to break your arm when you went out skiing, but you did. And so now you're in the ER and now you got to pay for it. Uh, you probably didn't put away money from your paycheck to anticipate that. It's not like retirement. And so that ability to kind of be there for people when and where they need it and to give them that flexibility, that is really resonating with folks. And we think that's kind of the difference maker in the experience we're bringing I love your approach because it's the little things. You mentioned dignity of being able to pay your bills. I, look, Americans are proud people, and I say that very, very proudly. It's it's you know rare that somebody relishes skirting a bill or cheating somebody. You know, go along those lines. There's a lot of pride here. As you were describing the way that that works, paying the physician and the provider, you know what they are worth and their value, and having that transaction right away, and then being able to have that settlement from the patient side of it, I can't help but thinking like, why isn't your phone ringing off the hook from every single state Medicaid administrator saying, holy cow, these guys actually solved a way for this to work. You know, uh, it's a, it's a good question. I think, and it's an interesting one in the sense of where we've seen, I think the most traction is actually from the, the payers, right? And I think part of it is is sort of, look, I mean, the unvarnished opinion of it, I think, is that the position that the payers have, 
inside the ecosystem of healthcare today, right? You think about it of who, who's in that system. Obviously, there's the providers, there's the patient, there's employers. For, for most of the folks, there's the government. But the payers kind of have this privileged position at the middle where they have relationships with all those parties, right? And they have direct kind of one-to-one relationships with all those parties. And so the place where we've seen the most traction is with the payers for that precise reason, because in that position, they see the pain that this kind of the structural problems in the system are creating, right? Because we focus this conversation on the member side of it, right? Members have a hard time because they put off care. Members have a hard time because they take on interest-bearing debt to pay for these services. And members have a hard time yeah, because it's it's that uncertainty of what is a service going to cost, right? But there's other sides of pain too, right? The other side of the pain is for the providers where I think in this country, they charge off something like $250 billion a year of bad debt from people who came, got services, didn't pay for them. And so the provider just has to look at it and say, hey, yeah, you know, we're just, we're going to write this off. And so I think for folks that are like, you know, whatever, you spend time in the financial sector, you sort of think about how a business like that runs, like that money can't just disappear, right? Like if you lose $250 billion a year, what you're going to do if you're the providers is you're going to say, well, I have to make that up somewhere. And the place I'm going to make that up is the place where I know I can collect money, which is from the payers. So what happens is rates go up. And then when rates go up, the premiums for the insurance goes up because the cost of the underlying service goes up, right? So a metaphor that's relatable for people, like it costs you a lot more to insure a $100,000 car than it does to insure a $5,000 car, right? And rightly it should. Well, this is kind of a similar, it's a similar metaphor where every year your car is getting more expensive by like 5,000 bucks. So your insurance is going up too. It's a similar problem. And so the payers see that pain and then they have to negotiate with the employers and be the ones to break the news to them every year of the day, your rates going up. And so the payers are the ones where we're actually having those like meaningful discussions with them to say, hey, there's an ability to reach people at scale. You guys occupy that privileged position because that is a relatively concentrated market in this country, the payer side, as opposed to the provider side where it's hyper local, right? Yeah, if you think about the kind of just like a market share Pareto graph or whatever, way more concentrated on the payer side. And so one is they see everyone and they see all the pain points. And two is they feel the responsibility for it, right? Because the feedback and the the sort of blowback that they get from members for, you know, the size of the deductibles, denied claims, things like that, like they're not blind to that. And so we've seen them engaging meaningfully with us on, on wanting to sort of help solve this. We've seen a little bit slower on the employer side. We, we have a side of our business that sort of works directly with them. I think in part because the last two or three years, if you were an HR leader in this country, have been crazy. You had to navigate the pandemic, you had to navigate getting people out of the office, and you had to navigate people getting back in the office. And so there's so many things going on in that space that I think there there is a risk that sometimes this topic gets lost in the fray. But from the perspective of the employees, I think it, it is very much a kind of timely issue, especially with inflation being what it is. It's an uncomfortable subject. And I think that's part of the problem, too, is because people don't talk about getting sick or having accidents until it actually happens. And then we're sitting here saying, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, and in. You had mentioned a lot of the write-offs, and I know that if I don't mention this, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail, and I don't want to do that. 
But people are going to say right in and say, well, damn it, Chris, there's so many write-offs because they're charging inflated prices. So how do we actually know the market cost versus market you know, value of these services without all that crap in the middle of it? So there you go. I got I to gotta appease, uh, you know, I don't want any pitchforks breaking down my, my door. And so you know, problems here and there, right? So I, I, <laughs> I go on the same page there. We are talking to the chief commercial officer of patient, Darius Cherzad. Darius, I, I always like to peek under the hood and kind of see what your motivations are. Like, how did you find yourself in this chair uh, with the interesting caveat that you are not uh, native born to the United States? No, it's true. Uh, it's a, yeah, a little bit of an interesting route, I think. So I, uh, I, I grew up in Canada. I sort of, I ended up in the U.S. I came for grad school. And then I ended up working for a couple of years uh, for a consulting firm, yeah, mostly in New York, but a little bit all over. And so there, especially in the later years, I did some work both sort of in healthcare and financial services and actually towards the latter end of my work there, kind of at the intersection of the two. And so it, it was through there that honestly, I, I kind of became awake to this idea of, of how much of a problem this sort of shift in responsibility from the plans, whether that's the employer or the insurance company itself, to the member actually was, right? And then that whole impact that it had in terms of providers charging off debt, in terms of members going into their own sort of uh, personal debt, right? And eventually this whole line of medical bankruptcy. And then I would argue kind of the most sinister implication of it is this idea of the deferred care, right? Deferred or foregone completely. And so through that work, I kind of became awake to this problem. And so when I was looking for what I wanted to do next, kind of in my career, I, I sort of had this in the back of my head. And then a little bit out of dumb luck, honestly, I, I kind of stumbled upon patient. And I felt that there's two other things that kind of mattered for me, right? As I thought about just my own story and what I wanted to do. One was, look, it was important to me to work on an issue that I think is societally important. Right. Like as a as a person. Right. I think that's that's kind of a, a thing that I, I, I value. Right. And I think in my career, I would want to have. And so growing up where I grew up and growing up in a public health care system, like, look, Canada's system is certainly not perfect, but we don't have this problem of funds and money as a barrier to people getting care. Like that is a non-issue broadly in the system that that exists in that country because it's a public system. It's a huge problem here in this country, and it has a whole bunch of kind of downstream things around health equity and the impact that that has on outcomes for for people of color or minorities. And so I felt like societally, this was like an issue that I could get behind and I, I would feel like, hey, if I can crack this or at least make a contribution towards cracking this, I think I would feel good about that. And then the last piece of it is, and I'll, I'll say this earnestly as, as the person who, you know, I the way the product is structured was not my idea. I think it's very clever the way it's built. And so if you think about the the way it, it sort of works, right, where we're sort of providing in, interest-free and like sort of fee-free funds to individuals to use for medical services, we let them pay it back on their own terms. It's good for the providers because providers gets paid. It's good for the employers. It's good for the payers. Like it's not something that creates losers, as a solution, like it really is one of those like win, win, win type things. And you don't see a lot of things like that truly out there. And so, you know, if you had one of those moments of like, hey, put a gun to your head, who who is this hurting? Look, sure, 
at the worst case, this is hurting folks who are providing high interest loans, payday lenders, dedicated medical financing. It's eating away at the business that those people provide. If that's the worst thing that this product is doing, I think overall it's still pretty good. And so to me, it was that mix of like important societal issue, clever solution, and the idea that honestly, it's a, it's a big problem, right? This isn't a, this isn't a small issue of, of some kind of niche within a niche. It's huge because it's affordability in healthcare. And and in that sort of sphere or in the sector, I can't really think of one that kind of rises to that level. So it was a little bit the mix of those that ended up uh, ended up with me in this chair today. Well, now you got me curious because you know you're almost making it sound like this is a charity, but it's obviously not a charity. How do you guys survive with interest? You know, advancing funds that no interest, no points, nothing like that. You know, if I'm keeping score at home, I'm scratching my head and say, okay, where's the other part of the equation here? It's exactly right. And so the the other part of the equation is we'll charge a small fee either to the employers or to the health plan in order to furnish this credit to folks. And so we've gotten based on the experience we have, based on what we see in terms of utilization, which, you know, if you think about point solutions in the benefit space, right, we we see something like 20 to 30% of folks transacting with our product at the end of the first year. That's kind of unheard of in this space, right? These point solutions usually hover around like, I don't know, one to five percent, right? We feel pretty good about that. It's it's another employer benefit that I guess comes in my packet and I don't read that crap anyway. So what exactly. am I going to do about yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so this this is one where we'll kind of assess a small fee to those folks and that effectively is subsidizing it for the whole population to have it. And so we can do that, you know, based on especially the fact that uh, we have the ability to recollect through payroll. We can do that in a way that is certainly economical for employers and for payers. And we can do it in a way that really does create a positive ROI for the people sponsoring it. And so it's a little bit of that, even though there's a small cost that's assessed to those sponsors, really, we can create wins for them in the form of shifting the cost curve in terms of reducing attrition, in terms of flexibility on plan design, all of which end up being accretive to the sponsor. How do you, and, and again, we're talking to the chief commercial officer of patient Darius Cherzad. You, you mentioned kind of the Canadian or kind of a European, uh, I know you mentioned that some of the show notes, kind of that, that I don't want to use disparaging terms that, you know, people throw out there, but it's not the Medicare for all, you know, it, what do you say to the people who are moving the opposite way? Um, obviously our work at Freedom Health works for saying, you know what, we would really like it if that third party was completely out of the exam room, completely out of the financial equation. And so with transparent prices, without all the crap in the middle of it, costs are coming down. Accessibility is skyrocketing because there's no more barriers there. What do you say to those people and how are they able to work with patients? I think the headline way I would say would be we agree, right? Like I don't think our perspective on where the system is going or where the system needs to go and really our role in it is predicated on needing to have a sort of, you know, I think in the U.S. we talk about this idea of Medicare for all, but just more generally, like more public participation in health insurance. I actually don't think that's that's sort of the recipe for success for us as a business either, right? And certainly not a precursor to it. So as we think about that idea of kind of more transparency, cash-based pricing, yeah, bundled payments, bundled services, all that stuff, and and kind of the, I guess I would say deregulation a little bit. Maybe that's not the right word in this case, but 
lack of regulation. I guess. Lack of regulation, yeah, in that. Which is a good thing. Not, yeah. I don't know, because you can say lack of education is this wild west and people are getting taken advantage of. But I guess I, I would say, you know, increased competition, less uh, cost, regulatory cost. I talked along those lines. I think we're, look, the headline is we're all for it, right? Because if you think about our model, our model is predicated on the idea of you're putting a card in the hand of a member and you're saying you choose where you go. Whether you're going somewhere that's part of your plan, that's in network, that's sort of included as part of your coverage, or whether you're shopping around and you're saying, hey, I can get a knee surgery from, you know, a specialized orthopedic provider in another geography for one-fifth of the contracted rate that my insurance company would pay, and I'm going to go do that, then you can still use your patient card to pay for that. And so in our mind, it's it's sort of like you sort of mentioned something about the the earlier about the idea of sort of this is a proud country, right? This is a proud country. And as an external observer or someone who's lived here who didn't grow up here, I also think it's a country that values choice, right? And And for us, the idea of a payment card that you have that you can use to pay a provider of your choosing and then choose the repayment terms of your choice, that enhances choice. And I think that sort of shift in the system is consistent with kind of where we'd expect it to go. And and I think honestly, probably a good way to control costs in a system where it's, you know, spiraling at 10% a year, right? Darius, that was so well said that I'm going to wrap things up right there and I'm going to leave you, I'm going to leave you the last question here. So, you know, for any employers or health brokers, administrators listening right now, give us your elevator pitch on why they should incorporate patient into their health plan. Yeah, of course. I would say it along the lines of the following, right? Member responsibility is going to continue to persist and it's continued to increase and it's going to have all of those downside effects that we've talked about. Looking ahead, credit has a place as part and parcel of that health plan to help your employees and help those individual people actually access care. And it can be done in a way that creates value for employers in a sense of reducing direct spending on healthcare through plan design flexibility and in a way that's more cost effective than changing your plans than increasing HSA contributions, giving people raises. And similarly from the side of the health insurers, this can be done in a way that is, is sort of increasing value for those insurers in the form of shifting the cost curve on their fully insured populations, while at the same time keeping the individual patients out of interest-bearing debt and products which are financially harmful to them, and at the same time helping them get care when and how they want it on their own terms and giving them the ability to pay back in a way that fits their budget. So if that sounds like something that's of interest to you, we'd love to hear from you. It's Darius Cherzad, the Chief Commercial Officer at Patient. Thank you so much for joining us and, and really just telling your story. I appreciate that. Chris, thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com. Catch all of our previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list. Check out, I know I always say this, but our fantastic online store. Everybody needs Healthcare Americana gear. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin.
Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient's employer or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.